Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me as always is Eitan. Happy Hanukkah, Eitan. Ooh, happy Hanukkah to you, Carl. I'm speaking to you via my Hanukkah gift to myself. I, I see, I am jealous. <laughs> Good audio, Eitan, should be back for the first time in like seven months, probably, since my last mic went kaput. We have invested in our, uh, further invested in our very profitable endeavor, which is stuck in development by Aton <laughs> has gotten a professional mic set up with a boom arm and a, uh, whatever you call it, a, a filter that dangles it, a shock mount. That's what's Jingle? Called. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. A jiggle yes. mount, yeah. Yes, a jiggle uh, mount. And I will probably be joining him here in the next few weeks with, with it as well. But yeah, uh, I've received my first Hanukkah present this year which was from you so thank you oh yeah yeah did you like it wait was I it did. your first hanukkah present ever or just your first hanukkah gift of this year I, i've never received a hanukkah present oh okay well then you tell the listeners about it i saw it and yeah. i thought this is carl it is in a room where alex is sleeping right now so i'm not going to go grab it but it is a time magazine cover from the late 80s uh, an iconic Time Magazine cover for those of us who are Michael Eisner fanboys, where it's, uh, why is the mouse smiling? It's Mickey Mouse. And it's because Michael Eisner just earned the company $3 billion, and it's him with his big goofy grin. There's also like a, a drugs and politics section in the corner, and it's, it's just very <laughs> 80s, and I love it. And It was a wonderful, fun, thoughtful eBay gift. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. I have to say, I didn't tell you, but... I started going down that rabbit hole because I wanted to find something signed by Michael Eisner. Uh-huh. And then I saw that magazine signed, but when I went to the listing, it was like one of those eBay things that it was unclear if it was just like a photo of the cover uh, yeah. that was signed. And then there was another one that it looked fake. And I was like, you know, I think having the magazine is cooler because I want you to read the article and tell me everything about it because it sounds insanely <laughs> good. But yes, just so you know, the the hope was to get it also signed. But uh, maybe next, maybe next Hanukkah. I texted friend of the show Christina Troitino the cover, and she was like, "You have to do a book report episode." So I will read the whole <laughs> exactly. issue yeah. cover to cover, report back. Yeah, when I saw the three billion dollars, I was like, I haven't read it, so I don't know if it's profit, if it's revenue, but that's like one point two. Avenger Endgames, yeah, or whatever. So yeah, the eighties were a different time. Certainly, and I don't know. I if if I could write a, a biopic of anyone, it would certainly be Michael Eisner. I'm just fascinated by him. He's uh. So this is this is a good prelude into what we're going to be talking about this whole episode as we're getting back into the swing of recording after two weird weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Alex and I watched School of Rock with their family. A few oh. ago, years ago, and a few, few weeks ago, and just haven't seen that in forever. And there's a line that Alex and I became obsessed with in the film where Miranda Cosgrove is, she takes on the, the form, she wants to be the producer slash agent of the band. So she's becoming the, the savvy businesswoman. And with that, there's a, a scene at the end where all the parents are coming in and they're screaming at the principal about all the weird things the kids have been doing around like playing music all the time, dressing strange, cutting their hair weird. And Miranda Cosgrove's parents shout, 
why is my daughter obsessed with David Geffen? <laughs> and just, <laughs> that is such an inside industry, like, joke. David Geffen, big studio head, uh, I think of Universal Music Group. He is the G in yeah. DreamWorks, SKG, Spielberg, mm-hmm. Katzenberg, Geffen. Katzenberg. So just, he's always been an audio media music mogul. And it was just sort of a, a uh, lately, lately on the lately on the news because of the size of his yacht. I think that's the last thing. Oh, yeah. you know, like six months ago, there was something about his yacht. I don't remember. Yeah, there we go. David Geffen's yacht. That's the episode title. We got it. Uh, <laughs> but it was just such a funny thing because it's like, yeah, you know, if I was in that situation and I was her age, that's exactly who I would have become obsessed with is David Geffen. <laughs> yeah, because on that note. I think I've told you that I've read Disney Wars, but I don't have a physical copy. Mm-hmm. And I finally, uh, I've, I've, I've been trying to get it from an independent bookstore. And of course, nobody has it there. But, you know, I'm like, hey, can you get it for me and order it? There you go. That's so beautiful. And I finally found it in one. So they ordered it. And hopefully it's going to get here before I leave for Mexico for three weeks. So that I can take it with me and reread it. It's a perfect time, but it might be here until January. Is it out of print? I think it's out of... Uh, I was talking with Ariel about what does out of print mean, right. technically. But it looks like they have access to inventory. I don't know if it's like... I Yeah, but to your point, in my mind, when I think out of print, it's like, yeah, they haven't made another edition in probably, I don't know, 10 years, 15 yeah. years. Should we? Should we do like a fundraising and get the, the rights to Disney Wars? I feel like that would be like our GoFundMe. <laughs> Probably. I mean, when like, I say I want to make a uh, Michael Eisner biopic, I just want to adapt this book, Disney War, into a film. <laughs> into a film or into an eight-part series, HBO yeah, Max? That's, that's more likely. Uh, yeah, Disney War is, like, probably the single most important text to this podcast. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> I think it is something that broke both of our brains. At least it broke my brain when I read it. I read it back in in college. And I was like, there's like all these Machiavellian machinations behind the happiest things on earth. What? What is this? Yeah, yeah exactly. I would say it's probably the single most... Like, if we hadn't read that, maybe this podcast wouldn't exist. Now, I think part of our love to that intersection of business and creativity and theme parks and logistics and weird business culture and fights comes from there somehow i 100 percent agree like we've talked about my steve jobs love on this (laughs) show before and how that really shaped my views and his dealings with pixar and disney and everything ended up being tangentially kind of what sucked me into the, the disney ecosystem and i think this book was really critical for me of being of realizing you know the succession thing of Nobody knows what they're doing. They're all pretty terrible at it. And none of their motivations make any rational sense beyond they just want more. <laughs> That's very fair. I'm I'm you probably heard my keyboard go clickety clack because I wanna know Is James Stewart still alive? He is. Oh, and he's pretty young. We should get him on the podcast somehow. Ooh. This is so interesting. Like, 
His latest book, 2019, Deep State, Trump, the FBI, and the Rule of Law. Okay. The book before that, Tangled Webs, How False Statements Are Undermining America, from Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. Okay. Before that, Disney World. Before that, Heart of a Soldier, A Story of Love, Heroism, and September 11th. Before Bland Eye, How the Medical Establishment Let a Doctor Get Away with Murder. So interesting. Yeah, it just sounds like he's the yeah. epitome of, like, he's a journalist. Barbarians at the Gate is... Form. Barbarians at the Gate is an excellent book. It's, uh... I... About the... I don't see it here. Wait, sorry. He didn't... Sorry. I always think he wrote it. It was a massive inspiration for him that he cited once. Oh, okay. So, scratch that. But I'm also going to stump for Barbarians at the Gate here. It's about... Uh, the leverage buyout in the 80s of RJR Nabisco. So it's a similarly toned book oh, where it's a bunch of okay. of sharks coming in to raid a company and that company is a cookie manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange book. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. think of business and private equity and think like finance companies or weird things. Like, no, these things as well. Cookies and uh, Cinderella castles. The, the last time I remember hearing about James V. Stewart in the news was when he accidentally outed Tim Cook on air on CNBC in 2014. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't know this story. Yeah, I mean it's one of those. Outed, oh my god. The the thing is, Cook has been like <laughs> the general public has been aware of his sexuality far before he publicly came out and did the big press tour and all the uh, the speeches and the the articles and everything. So it was like it was bad form of James V. Stewart. But at the same time, everybody in media and business and tech knew and obviously didn't care. And it was just sort of a fact of life. But they were just kind of naming publicly out like major gay business figures on CNBC. And he was like, why has nobody mentioned Tim Cook? And everyone, you can see in the video, everyone just sort of like freezes up because everyone knows Tim Cook is gay. But nobody's allowed to say it because he hasn't publicly said it. So it was just, it's a very awkward video in my recollection <laughs> that's very stern so yeah no the title of the of the episode is uh, david geffen's yacht and james stewart uh, outing tim cook it sounds very <laughs> historical <laughs> the last time we thought about these historical people yeah uh i just i'm gonna keep this conversation moving i so we, we want to do this do wanted to do this episode as kind of a extended wow and like check in over the last two weeks as we've been checked out of this podcast and checked into family life thanksgiving and then a lot of work stuff um but in addition to what we've been watching there's something else i wanted to bring up on this which is a book i read over the last two weeks okay yes one of my favorite things in film is well just any medium in general is I like reading the furthest possible extreme of technology or whatever somebody's doing and then kind of working my way backwards from that. Like, I like learning the craziest, hardest, most impractical stuff first. So, like, on okay. here, on my bookshelf behind me, I've got um, a lot of, like, modernist molecular gastronomy cookbooks. Stuff that's completely impractical. Techniques and technology that I rarely use, but it's a lot of fun and it helps my, like, science brain understand how to deconstruct the art. It's like the food lab. Work, exactly. Right? Like that yeah. sort of stuff. Okay. Like, um, I have... You have to cook your scrambled eggs at exactly 170 blah exactly. in a type of skillet for... Yeah. 
Yeah. And, like, I don't do that every time I cook, but, like, understanding the furthest extremes of it, and, like, we went to, we were in Chicago a few weeks ago, we went to a bar called the Aviary, which is, like, cutting edge, the furthest limits of cocktail making. Like, they, they serve a, a cocktail in an ice sphere that you have to crack yourself, and then the cocktail comes Ooh, out of I the saw ice. Instagram. I saw Alexis. Yes. Yes, yes, I saw, I saw Alex. Yeah, that looks great. So, these guys, they have a like a sous vide immersion circulator that instead of being hot it makes things really cold so it's super chilled water and then they take water balloons and put them in the super cooled bath so the outside freezes making a sphere they use a drill and a syringe to remove the water and insert a cocktail and then you have a a cocktail in an ice ball like that's the sort of stuff i'm like into with all my hobbies is like taking it to the worst possible extreme um Mm -hmm. So similarly, I love that sort of thing with film as well. Like Ang Lee's HDR, 4K, 3D experiments are just so my thing. Like I love reading about people and thinking about people that they're like, what can film do next? Like what is the the most important thing I can be doing to push the medium forward? Like a Steven Soderbergh on his iPhones or a, a James Cameron with Avatar, same exact stuff. So that's all to say that a few weeks ago, I picked up a book called Live Cinema and Its Techniques, written by Francis Ford Coppola, director of Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Important Dude. And this thing was a great, great read. Like, his whole thing was, we all know that television is more like film these days. But what I miss is the old live television of, like, the 50s and 60s where... Just things would spontaneously happen. You never knew what would happen. Like, there was magic in the moment of watching it live. And right now, we have Saturday Night Live and news broadcast and things like Grease Live, which he cites as the best version of the live musical. And then there's, like, a ton of awful stuff. Like, what the... Have you seen the, the promos for Annie Live? No. Oh, it looks I, But I know that John Legend got his ego by doing... Uh... Jesus Christ Superstar Live. Yeah, yeah, it's like a weird trend, and like there's Annie Live aired, I think, last night or two nights ago, and Harry Connick Jr. plays Daddy Warbucks, and he's like completely bald, and it's terrifying looking. So, not a fan of this. Let me send you a screenshot. <laughs> it, it looks, it looks fake. Yeah, it's, it's like, like so bad and fake looking. And then you also have like the Matthew Morrison Grinch from a few years ago. It's just like these awful looking monstrosities. But I digress here. Francis Ford Coppola's whole thing was, okay, what if we could make live productions look cinematic? Where like they have real lighting and real camera work and blocking. And there's a sense of scale and scope and editing except it's all happening live. So the entire book is this, like, he put on two workshops, one at UCLA and one at the Oklahoma City Community College, for some reason, where he just got a bunch of actors and a bunch of cameras, and he just, like, set up all these weird modular sets, put up 20 cameras, pre-filmed some stuff, and then just was, like, in an editing bay, editing everything furiously live as people were like acting on stage and making yeah. a movie in real time. <laughs> and it's just the craziest endeavor, but also like was such a good view of like how television history and technology and mu- movie history and technology converge and are changing. And 
I can't recommend it enough, but you will get nothing out of it from in a practical sense. That is so funny because when you talk about it, what comes to mind is some of the things that are happening in sports that mm. are super, super minor, right? But when you think of like, if you've seen, like maybe if you saw one of the Thanksgiving games, like in some of the primetime show, the cameras that they're using are like cinematic cameras. Yeah. Like in the playoffs in baseball, they have this take that they love that I think looks great where the camera follows someone that hit a home run from third to home. And it's it's cinematic. Like whether it's, the, you know, the bouquet and the depth of field and how he looks and how like they're trying to do, to your point, maybe they're not editing it, but they're paying more attention into exactly how they want these things to look. And it's very, very minor. But yeah, what you said, right? When you think of live TV, it's like Saturday Night Live, live sports, yeah. the award ceremonies, and news, I guess. Yeah. That's it. Um, that's interesting. What's the name of the book? Live, live filming. Live and cinema and its techniques. Live cinema. That is a really interesting point that like dovetails with something I learned from this book, which is uh, the way TV is shot. I mean, up until. Like, if we look at 80s and 90s TV and live TV, these lens, like, you usually have a, zoom lenses on the camera so that you can zoom in and out of shots. Um, and zoom lenses mm-hmm. require a lot more light. So things have to be mm-hmm. washed out by overhead light to make sure everything's lit or else the, the image doesn't come across. That's a problem you see less in live sports because it's already super well lit anyway. But the interesting thing that he cites here, which I've seen, I've seen in, like, the commentaries of David Fincher and, and some other people that are very technically minded is the beautiful thing about modern digital sensors is instead of using a zoom lens to zoom you can just zoom in on the image and the image is so high resolution that you're not losing broadcast resolution so if you have an 8k sensor you can functionally fit eight 1080p streams within the frame of the sensor so all you have to do is punch in to the 1080 pixel area that you want to hit, and that's what you broadcast. So if you're if you're trying to get these sweeping camera movements, all you have to do is record it, and then in in live post, you're just moving the visible area of the broadcast across the the static visible area of the image. It's so cool and just brilliant to think about things that simply yeah and it dovetails i think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago in one of our technology episodes about creativity and innovation of Mm -hmm. how you end up relying on techniques that sometimes are created in an area or in a field that makes a lot of sense like you can think of that as maybe coming like yeah well the fields that are pushing this forward are film and tv so the development of cameras is probably coming from that when in reality, you know, when you think of digital sensors, when did they start becoming crazy good in the last 10 mm-hmm. years? Maybe because of the smartphones. These cameras are not using smartphone technology, but some of the ideas are like, well, yeah, these lenses are not going to zoom. They don't have mechanics right. to zoom or whatever they can do is very small. Well, how do we play with sensors or how do we play with the specified silicone or chips that it's only for cameras or whatever? So interesting to see people taking ideas from one industry to the other i mean that goes with the uh the kyle rittenhouse trial did you see the stuff about the, the zooming on the ipad 
I I tried to stay away from the trial because I knew going in that it was going to make me oh very angry. For but sure. Tell me more. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We we won't talk about the trial too much, but and this will just make you angrier. I'm sorry. Oh my god. But the uh, the whole trial was a disaster. Like the judge, the judge and all the lawyers were awful. Like the defense lawyers were probably the smartest people in the room, or at least the ones that were the most competent presenting, which is disappointing. But unfortunately, yeah, there was a, a point in which the prosecution had a video of Rittenhouse that they were showing on a screen, like airplay projected or, or plugged in. And they pinched to zoom in on something on the video. And the defense immediately tried to, like, get it removed of evidence and even, like, tried to push for a mistrial because they're like, well, Apple's algorithms automatically smooth out and enhance things so it's not the real image that was captured, which, one, like, is not true for pinch to zoom on that it's true for some of the other things but it just begs this like in a ship of theseus question of if you have ai enhanced image capture and you're capturing something different with the light then is it the reality i don't know like the answer is yes it's the reality because this has been a problem for all of technology of all time and that's just how the medium right. works but it was a insane thing and the judge was completely incompetent and was just like yeah, that, that makes sense. That's scary. That. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Thanks for making me mad. You're welcome. But <laughs> there really is this kind of just existential problem as we have more technology of what is real and what is not. And then you just realize it's all art and artifice anyway. So who cares? <laughs> so who cares? Why are we alive? Uh, we want to do our extended wow, 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 wow. Yeah, let's let's do it. So Eitan, wow. I felt very good these past 10 days. I watched, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine movies. Wow. Almost like one a day and I tried to push more and maybe a couple of other ones came up. So I don't think we need to talk in detail about either of the, I mean, there are some that I know we want to talk about because I know you also saw and we want to talk about them, but I'll just roll them out. I want to hear what you saw and then we can deep dive into some of them. I watched, in no particular order, this is just how I remember them this morning, I watched Jungle Cruise, I watched Shang-Chi, Eternals, Tick Tick Boom, The Iron Giant, Frozen 2, Pig, If Bill Street Could Talk, King Richard, and the first 10 minutes of La La Land. <laughs> because I was like, I want to wow. watch the opening. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Th- this excluding TV, of course, you know, Succession, Finishing Younger, up to date with what we do in the shadows. Because I'm going to Toronto to visit our friend Kevin in February mm-hmm. and want him to show me the, the set, which I know he lives close by. It might not be up by then, but still. So Sorry, I... you, were, you were like, wow, why? Is it like, oh my God, Itan actually watches movies and it's not Carl talking alone about what he saw? Well, it's, it's funny in this case because over the last two weeks, I've primarily watched more TV than movies. Oh, okay, fine, good. Yeah, so I'll, I'll rattle through what mine, and then we can kind of just, like, work through both lists and talk about the things we both want to talk about. So, awesome. I've been watching a lot of what we do in the shadows, and Alex and I also are concurrently watching a bit of Wellington Confidential. Oh, yeah, Wellington I watched the first two yeah. only. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. 
<laughs> yeah, we saw that on HBO, and I knew about it. I was like, Alex, you should watch this. Like, it's it's adjacent. It's just a New Zealand show, and yeah. Uh, we've been watching the season of Curb Your Enthusiasm live as it's been airing. Um, mm. Both of us have checked in and out of Curb forever, but never really committed to watching it. So it was really nice. It's one of those things, like, this happens all the time for me. Uh, well, it used to before things became all streaming. But where I'd, like, watch a TV show and then I'd watch the show after it, too, because it's like, eh, it's on after and this is great. So this has become our tradition around Succession because it's like, eh, we're watching Succession and then Curb comes on after, so might as well stream that, too. Um, Tick, tick, boom, twice. I mean, once after you, I saw it and talked mm. to you about it. Uh, School of Rock. And the Kingsman movies. <laughs> Alex has never seen them, and I had only seen the first oh, one. Oh yeah, yeah. We we. You wanted to delightful. watch them because it's finally coming out after like two years from its official. Yeah, I like that. It's crazy. Every time I see that trailer in the movies or on TV, I'm like, I've been watching this trailer for three years now, and I remember the first one, which was with Led Zeppelin, and now it's like they just changed the movie and a little bit the type of things that they show. I feel like I'm, I've watched the movie now. This is insane. <laughs> it has to be the most delayed movie from COVID. It has to. It has to be. It it is deeply uncanny valley watching just something that only exists in trailer form. Uh, yeah, it's I I guess I'll I'll start with this since we're already kind of talking about it, and then let's go back through your yeah. list and, and work through it. Perfect. But let's do it. Kingsman, I I I saw the first one when it came out, not in theaters, but like right after, and was above all taken with the action. Like it is very unique and fun action that I think uses yeah. digital photography in a very clever way and like speed and sound and everything and it's just there are a lot of fun yeah the last 10 minutes of the first one still maybe a bit too weird with the color exploding heads oh for sure I get it that's what they're going through but I feel like if that was slightly different I would like love those movies and it yeah. makes me be like, okay, you went above the top in a couple of places here and there. The meat grinder in the second one, it's another thing that is like, okay, <laughs> fine, I get it. And the robot dogs and Elton John, okay, it has to be wacky. <laughs> the meat grinder and the... Yeah, we, we watched the first one before Thanksgiving and Alex was really taken by it. And I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I remember enjoying it the first time. And yeah, Samuel L. Jackson's a bit much in it. And like, it's, there are some things where it just kind of rips you out of it uh this we watched the second one last night and i think certainly more mixed than the first one but like shocking moments of like pathos and like character development and like some interesting narrative choices for sure and honestly i did not expect i didn't even know elton john was in it and i didn't expect him to be like the comedic <laughs> mvp of the film yeah how about Country Road, Take Me Home? I Pretty sad. Well, He's great. The first, in the first scene, there's a bagpipe cover of it. And I was like, is this Country Road? And then it's yeah. like the emotional through line of the film over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Like, it's... Alex had a really salient point around it, which is the Kingsman films kind of perfectly fit the... They fill the vacuum left by the Craig Bonds being so self-serious. Like, every Craig Bond movie is, is about, what is James Bond? Who is he? Does he matter in this century? 
And then all of these are like, remember that goofy Roger Moore shit? This is so fun. Yeah. You want to have a cowboy lasso that is actually a laser? Here you go. <laughs> right? It's like, you want to see Channing Tatum doing crazy things? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think they're fun. I really want to watch the, the new ones because they have the the actor that I you always make fun of me for not being able to say his last name. Is it fine? Finesse? It's Rafe Fine. <laughs> Rafe Fine. Oh my god. Not Finesse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as a kid I called him Ralph Fiennes. He oh, just seems a like thing. a perfect match for that and it looks fun. And every time we see the trailer, Alex and I we always kind of forget that that movie's coming out and the tr- the newest trailer just starts off with like a a very like favorite scene with Rasputin in a like oh, banquet yeah. hall. And he's like, why don't you get me a drink or something like that, no? And, and every time we're like, is this like a new like Ianucci movie or something? We're so into this. And then it's like, oh yeah, it's the King's Band. Cool. <laughs> yeah. But I remember the first one with the song. Freebird. What is the song from Black Sabbath? The the church. No, because no. In the new, in the new, the new uh, trailer doesn't have it. I don't. Oh, you're thinking about the Warpix. 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 I thought you were talking about the first movie, not the first trailer. Starting in the shadow. That first trailer is awesome. It's great. Anyway, that this it, we've had many trailers. Yeah. But okay, fun movies, and you still haven't watched John Wick. Is that correct? You know, I we're working on it. Can you see if they're playing in San Francisco next week when I'm there somewhere? I would love to go watch John Wick with you. Hey, if they are, I would be down. I mean, I'm probably going to be in Keanu mode after Christmas with Ooh, the Matrix films, you, you know? So that'll be a yeah. good either on-ramp or off-ramp from, from Matrix Resurrections. No, you should watch them. You're going to like them. Um, but okay, let's let's start ticking some of this off. I know we'll, we'll spend more time in some. Let's start films, but ticking some of it off? Let's start ticking. Exactly. That's where I was going to go. Uh-huh, so I watched uh-huh. Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah. And you watched it again, it sounds like. Yes. I think it was the first thing, it was just a great reminder of how much I love Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Like, just going back, like, it finished, I was like, I want to watch The Social Network again. I even want to watch Spider-Man again. Like, he's awesome. He's great. I like him. He's very, he's captivating. I don't know. There is something about him that I found just very, very good. It's insane. Ariel and I are big rant fans. So every five minutes, we're like, ah, 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 yeah. ah, you know, some of them on purpose, some of them not on purpose, like not on purpose. You know, there is a, the second song around the uh, moving to the apartment with the bellboy and yes. the elevator. That movie, no more. that song yeah. sounds exactly like Rent. It does. Like we're not going to play like The Rock and like you could see it coming. It was also very interesting to see. I saw a little bit of how Tick, Tick, Boom looked like, you know, what it was which is represented in the movie, which is like this kind of mix of monologue and workshop and thing, and thinking, is this going to be in the movie? Because I had seen the trailer, and it looks like yeah. it's from the point of view of the story. And I thought it was a very clever way to put them together. Everything, all of those scenes didn't exist, of course. And the only things that existed was the monologue part on stage. Uh, I remember going th- halfway through the movie being like, holy crap, who is this actress that sings in the monologue? She's incredible. And I ask Ariella, she's like, oh, that's her. 
Vanessa Hodgins? Yes. And I was like, oh, that's Vanessa Hodgins, right? Carl said how amazing she is. <laughs> Especially in this, in, in the, you know, I'm afraid that you'll yeah. be afraid. She's, I was like, oh my God, I could watch her going like, like this, moving the head and smiling like all day. She's it's, so good in it. It's such a playful musical. And like, I, I love how each song is like a different genre or homage. Like Sunday is an homage to Stephen Sondheim's Sunday, which we had to talk about Sondheim in a second. But oh yeah, um, but that um, what is it called? Therapy. That song is feels very Chicago, mm-hmm. like the uh, like the marionette dance. Yep. Uh, she reached oh, for the gun. Yes. Oh yes. Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh yes. yes. Oh yes. Yeah. They both. Yeah. yeah. Like the same sort of thing, but yeah, it's just I I'm astounded in like digging into it and watching it a second time, like how little they had to work with to make a compelling film mm-hmm. in a film musical rather than just a weird off Broadway stage thing, and it like is so it's so impressive that they managed to make it work as a film musical. Yeah. And it was also something that I was thinking about, curious for your thoughts, is the mu- the movie, the the adaptation, is very impressive on how they did things. And it's for me, it was especially impressive because listening to some of the songs, you can tell this is him starting, like Larson starting his career yeah. and finding his voice. Like some of the songs are not, you know, not his style or don't rhyme or seem yeah. weird or seem half-baked. It's like, wait, if he had more time, he probably would have done something different with it. And then we talked about this a couple of weeks ago around, you know, you as an artist, sorry, us as audiences, what is the art that we end up being exposed to? Mm -hmm. And in this case, this is probably done because people know Rent, right? If Rent hadn't happened, nobody would have cared. Probably this would have never got done. Correct. But thanks to that, we can see what happened before and we're exposed to it and we can adapt in a way that it's... And it was just an interesting... I was thinking, like, perspective into not an unfinished work of art, but, like, for those of you who haven't watched Tick, Tick, Boom, Tick, Tick, Boom, it's a musical about Larson's process to write his first musical, Superbia. Superbia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. And how it took him 10 years to write it. And then, through that, how he learns and the feedback that he gets, including from Sondheim, and how after that process ends, he writes Tick, Tick, Boom, which is the story about him writing the first one, in like a year and a half. And then it's only the workshop that you end up seeing. Like the thing, I I don't know if that was just the workshop and he still wanted to develop it or if that was just kind of the first version of it. And, yeah. and you can tell that that is just, that's what it was, right? It never, it never ended up being finished. And he moved to Rent and whatever happened. But it was just a very interesting thing of like you think of adaptations and it's sometimes things that exist in a different medium or it was done in a different time this seems like a it's almost like a completion like if tick tick boom would have been finished and put on broadway they might have done some of these scenes that are not part of the monologue right they would yep. have have a right. his apartment and his blah or the street and these songs would have taken place in these settings and that just never happened that's at least how i felt but without knowing if it was finished when it was on stage. 
There was an off-Broadway production in the early thousands, but it's just three people playing all the parts. So it's um, Larson, his I'm blanking on names. His friend and his girlfriend are like the three major parts, but they also play all the like extras and everything too. So it's a very stripped down, abstract thing, whereas this is very concrete and not that. Yeah, it's. Have you seen Ed Wood? Not for a very long time. Okay. So Ed, I'm not going to be participating. Ed Wood is one of my favorite movies, I think, because it it is such a sweet and earnest and genuine thing. It's Tim Burton making a completely straight biopic about Ed Wood, who is one of the, the most critically like reviled. He's like a Tommy Wiseau figure in how bad his films are but he just earnestly made them and wanted to make them and loved making them and thought he was making art every day. And like, mm-hmm. he's clearly an influence in his like B movie aesthetics and to Burton, who was a far superior director, even at his worst. But the whole thing treats, treats Ed Wood like he's a normal dude who like, is worthy of our time and worthy of our respect. And like, you can't help but get wrapped up in the emotions of like being so in awe and in love with this character because Tim Burton clearly is. And that's the mm-hmm. exact same way I feel about this film where Jonathan Larson had one produced musical that didn't even start previews until the day after he died from an aneurysm. So mm-hmm. he's not a prolific writer. He made Rent, which is, did radically reshape musicals and broadway but he had that he had a two kind of failed smaller workshop things and that's his entire career but miranda takes the entire this guy so seriously he is clearly in love with this dude and clearly finds so much inspiration like if you know lin Morel miranda's music you know he finds inspiration just in how it sounds and it's just this like love letter to both him and like Intangent Stephen Sondheim, who is, who is Jonathan Larson's Jonathan Larson. It's very special. You want to talk about, yeah? Let's talk about Sondheim. Yeah, let's talk about Sondheim. I, I've been doing this more and more. Where, in the last year of somebody prolific's life, I'll just finally get really into them, and like it'll start ticking. Like for me, it was Bowie that happened to me. Uh, like Black Star and like was a really good album to me and like I really loved it and just that mixed with just going back and really rediscovering him. Uh, Charles Grodin, the comedian, was that for me. Like I just fell in love with Clifford and Real Life and a bunch of movies he was in and then he died. And now same with Sondheim. Like over the last year, I've really finally like cracked Sondheim and had a really strong emotional reaction to company and some of his other musicals partially because they keep like showing up in other things i love in movies and tv so sondheim dying really hit me like it was whenever a creator like this dies i just kind of tend to like go away and listen to their work or watch something of theirs for an hour or two on the night and just kind of think about it and remember them at least try to make a memory of them and this one Mm -hmm. really was beautiful and impacted me and i it was really interesting, especially given the headspace of really being in this tick tick boom fanaticism right now. But also, like I've already been like revisiting West Side Story and thinking about West Side Story, which is his first major produced musical. 
because of the Spielberg adaptation that's coming up. So I've already been in this headspace thinking about him a lot and listening to his work a lot, and then he's, like, gone. It's just really sad but beautiful and, and strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to see... I watched Tick, Tick, Boom probably, like, the week of his passing. And so, like, Twitter was also full of, like, some yeah. stuff right before and then after it happened. And it's one of those things that, you know, you never know. Or I guess I'm going through the phase of, you know, there is, like, this part of growing up and thinking about how much should you put like your heroes in pedestals mm-hmm. and understanding that every human is like, you know, dimensionals in ways that you don't know, both yeah. in good ways and bad. And also how with celebrities or with authors or any type of these things, you you might put too much emphasis or, or a way to say, you know, hey, Carl, you know, who's your hero? And you might say, oh, this person, because this is what I'm exposed to or this yeah. is what I know. And trying to both fight the urge to be like, oh, my hero is blah mm-hmm. for X or Y reason. But also be able to separate things of, like, for example, seeing seeing things from him. I was like, I don't know enough about Sondheim. Not last you do. No. I might not be as exposed to everything that he did. But he seemed, from what I could tell, that kindness that he had would be a virtue that I would like to have. Right? It doesn't mean that I want to be like him, but like trying to identify these things, I'm sure you saw them, and I probably saw them because you liked them. Like All of the letters that he returned to people, yeah. or in Tick, Tick, Boom, he's shown how he took the time to, to talk and to help, and how he had... Did you see the interview? I went back and saw the interview he did with Stephen Colbert. No. Like three months ago? Yeah, he goes when companies are about to reopen, and he, oh, uh, Colbert asks him about... Um, Oscar Hammerschmidt and how he was an inspiration to him and then you can see in the letters how he talks about Oscar, like somebody writes to him he's like hey I want to be a songwriter or a lyricist yeah. or whatever what do you recommend and he's like oh Oscar has this amazing book or like go read these things and um, Stephen Colbert there is something well kindness was one and again without being exposed too much there seemed to be a genuine Gen- he's very genuine. How do you say that? There is a it's not genuity. I don't know. Authenticity? You should you should watch Yes, yes, yes. You should watch this interview because Stephen Colbert yeah, is like first of all, I really like on that side I put Colbert on a pedestal. He has a lot of humanity and humility mm-hmm. and thoughtfulness that I connect with. And he tells him how you know when he was growing up and he saw uh, Sunday in the Park with George, and he saw a specific song, I don't remember which one, with Mandy Patinkin singing, how that for him was like a, oh, I want to make people feel the things that I'm feeling, listening yeah. to this song. And then you see Steven Sondheim react, and it's kind of insane. He's like this 91-year-old dude who is super, like, you know, he's influenced every part of musical theater, and he almost starts crying. Yeah. I don't know. It's very. It was very touching, and it's it's one of those. You and I have talked outside of the podcast around our, you know, we're in a part of our career that your professional life. It's a very important part of your life because you're we're 
acting, yeah. we're trying to find ourselves and what we want to do and the type of thing that we want to have, both in terms of to the world but to ourselves and waking up and feeling like we're doing something interesting or that we enjoy. And it was just a reminder of like trying to find that extension of your values or your things that you can go back and be like, this guy's 91 and he looks at his life and he can be, he can still be touched by people reacting to what he did. I, something really formative for me around him was the documentary. It's only an hour, but it's original cast album company. One of my absolute mm-hmm. favorite things I watched during COVID. I became aware of it. Like I've become aware of many documentaries through documentary now because they did a parody of it, but mm-hmm. it is, it's just this kind of stunning electric recording by D.A. Panabaker, who's a fantastic documentarian, around just the three-day process of recording the cast album for Company. And Panabaker ends up finding, like, all these character moments and arcs, and, like, there's this beautiful segment where it's the song Another Hundred People, uh, where he's just cutting between all the different instrumentation that's happening while they're singing it, and it's a magical thing. But Stephen Sondheim's a dick in it. Like, he's a young wunderkind. He, like, knows exactly what he wants. He is very demanding. He's, he's very encouraging, but he's just kind of so in his head about, like, I'm not translating what I want through your voices to the recording. And it's mm-hmm. just striking seeing that with, like, the, the genteel older Sondheim that, that, like, is the perception of him now and, like, his beloved figure. And that's yeah. just, like, such a good humble pathway like to start from that point and end up being kind of the grandfather and uncle figure of everyone in broadway it's just so beautiful and special everyone yeah uh yeah, it's funny seeing it in perspective before doing this uh, i mean twitter and elon musk yeah. tweeted my car is orbiting mars <laughs> cool dude <laughs> my like another major path to santan for me was uh the critic Matt Soller cites, who is one of the most important film critics for me, he really thinks how I think and thinks how I want to think about art and the world, and he's writes very meaningful pieces. Uh, he his wife his first wife died when they were in their mid thirties, and he has this beautiful piece called "All the Things That Remind Me of Her," where he just talks about how through their relationship with start which started in college and throughout their adult relationship. There's so much art and film and musicals and everything that she loved that he grew to love or grew to appreciate through her and just like associates with her. And one of the things was he just wasn't into musicals and she loved Disney musicals and she loved Sondheim. And he became a lifelong Sondheim, Sondheim lover through her, but also like it became incredibly painful to listen to Sondheim for a decade just because every time he listened to... a one of his lyrics, which are very insightful and beautiful and real and human versus the candy-coated nonsense of a lot of Broadway. Just, it was so painful because he just was thinking about her too much. And just, it was such a beautiful thing that really made me want to get into him years ago. And I just think about that piece all the time and reread it and was moved even more by it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And Have to... you... Go ahead. This might be where you're going, but you texted. Did you watch West Side Story, or were you just reacting Oof. to the reactions of people? I'm just reacting to the, re- the reactions of people. Unfortunately, I have not seen okay. West Side Story. 
I don't think there's any preview screenings here. Uh, I plan to see it next week, hopefully, maybe the week after. We, we'll see how timing works out. But, no, just... Alex and I were on a plane coming home, and I get off the plane and I open Twitter, and just all of New York film Twitter was just gushing about how much they loved West Side Story. Was just utterly shocked by that. Everyone seemed to. Yeah, like, like people are like, this is major Spielberg. It's not even that it's like one of the great movie musicals of the last few decades. It's like, no, he did it. It has a lot to say. It's an actual, like, it says things that differently than the musical or the film before it. And it's just beautiful and stunning. And just, I didn't expect that sort of reaction from frankly, like, and for a film by a very established director adapting something from 50 years ago that everyone has a very strong familiarity with in the film community. Yeah. That's awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like, I, I see, I mean, I'm in a bubble right now, you know, but if it hits with audiences, I really struggle to see a world in which it doesn't win Best Picture. <laughs> but if it doesn't hit with audiences, then I guess Belfast wins Best Picture. We'll have Kevin on soon to talk about this. But I just, between, I think Tick, Tick, Boom is a beautiful on-ramp into, like, Sondheim dying and then everything cresting with West Side Story being great. West Side Story. Um, you and I have talked about how there's a thirst in the, like the film musical community for a good film musical and in the heights and scratch that itch and yeah. tick tick boom did scratch that itch but it's smaller and this thing seems like an epic beautiful thing and I don't know it's Spielberg Spielberg won 20 years ago best picture I think he could win again Sondheim's dead just a lot of things are adding up in the like narrative for it I think Mm-hmm. Quick question about this. I don't know if I ask you this, but like with COVID delays, delays, West Side Story was supposed to come out last year. Exactly a year yes. ago, right? Yeah. Do those post-production continue? Do you think they spend more time cleaning, getting things ready? Or, you, or are these types of huge movies already kind of like locked, not because they can't or they can't pay Spielberg to do it more, but just locked because... Yeah, he had his vision and he did what he wanted. And what do you think? I I don't know. I Steven Spielberg is less of a tinkerer than many of his peers. Like Coppola and George Lucas certainly love to go back and re-edit and rework their things. Whereas like Scorsese or Spielberg, like they are a little less precious with the the history of their work and re-editing it and rethinking it so i imagine in this case once he had the final edit he just put it on a shelf and moved on to whatever else he's thinking about but i think that's that depends i i could certainly see someone else or something that's a lot more cg heavy using it mm -hmm. the extra time the extra budget to to kind of get there mm -hmm. that makes sense so on the the topic of like kind of thinking of about artistry and legacy, I want to hear your thoughts on Pig. I really enjoyed it. I don't want to spoil it, but 
the scene. So spoilers for P. If you haven't watched P, go forty five seconds to the future. The scene at the end where uh, he cooks for the father. Mm-hmm. I don't think they ever say the name. And the reaction of the father. I think like, why are you doing this to me? Like, there's just something about it where, like, the movie risked a lot of times going down the path of you've talked like about it, right? One is like, oh, is it gonna be John Wick? Is it gonna become an action movie because this guy really wants his pee back and it never does? But at the same time, it also risks like, wait, he happens to sell things to the son of the guy that used to be the thing, and then he also runs exactly into the guy that you know, like. Yeah. It seemed too forced, but it also it also doesn't. And it's just also one of those movies where I don't know the plot, how it ends, what ends up happening with the pig. I I guess it's refreshing for, for me because maybe I spend too much time with commercial, either fairy tales, you know, in general, mm-hmm. where it's like yeah, the pig died. The day they took it. Like there was no, there is no resolution. It doesn't matter. The story is not about what happened to the pig. Yeah, the story is about this guy going through it. Um, I don't know. I I enjoyed it. An hour and twenty four minutes, like yeah. super. I don't know. Very very strong. I liked it. The score is great. Um, it's a good stuff. It's great, and it's kind of magical how the film just kind of abandons the premise for a bit, you know? Like, it's sort of just decides, okay, we're going to resolve the main plot things that you came to the movie expecting and just kind of exist in this space for a bit. And it's it's very much of a piece with the conversation we've been having around Sondheim and tick tick boom in kind of miniature because it's about the impact this one single dude had on a very small community i i what am i i've been reading a lot more about kind of food food and legacy restaurants and legacy cocktails and stuff over the last year and reading a lot of famous cookbooks and books about these places and it really is the more I read all of these books and the more they reference books I've already read or have on my reading list, the more I realize how small some of these communities are like Broadway or fine dining where there are only a hundred positions, you know, like in, in the world at any given time that like carry import and carry the signifier of success. Whereas like in the business world or even like film, there are thousands of opportunities to like make an impact or, or be successful. And just all these people care so much about their legacy and like their impact on others, but also their own reputation. And it's so beautiful seeing Nicolas Cage's character who's kind of become self-actualized and moved beyond all the grubbing and like caring about what other think people think and where he's at now. And like, the scene at the end is beautiful. The scene, my brain broke watching the scene in the, the high end restaurant. With his like old line cook, it, 
Yeah, his old line cook. He's all fake. These people don't exist. You don't exist. And the guy's just like... (laughs) It reminds me so much of the scene in Tick, Tick, Boom where uh, his agent is talking to him and just saying, like, you gotta just keep going. The world doesn't care about you. Maybe they will one day. It's just like the cold hard truth is such a rare thing to hear, especially in entertainment, that it's just really poignant when it's done well. And this is interesting because I mean, if the if our relationship was a movie, but it's also like uh, you and I share uh, share perspectives in different ways, which is very interesting. Yeah. I thought exactly, like, I saw these movies in the same weekend, and I left feeling exactly the same from the two movies, but not from the hard truth. Saying what I was saying about yeah. Tick, Tick, Boom and Sondheim, like, both led me feeling like... They both failed at both sides of the story, right? Like, this guy is... I want to make this because if I get there and do a Broadway show, I'm going to be successful. Yeah. And then Peak tells, like, well, you might get there, and it still is not going to matter, right? Because your happiness might not be there. It it left me in the headspace of like, like the most human version of: Am I happy? Am I doing things that I wake up and feel joy? And not only feel joy in the sense that Tick Tick Boom talks about it, but feel mm-hmm. joy in a way that it's real, in the way Pig thinks about it, in the just the sense of like, am I? seeing happiness from the lens of what other people are going to think means success? Or am I seeing happiness from the perspective of I want to go live in the woods and have a pig? Yeah. Because that's what makes me happy, regardless of his wife passing, right? And yep. it, it left me in that, that thing of like, those two movies together, completely different genres. But to your point, you found that connection. And for me, it was they both kind of left like, Ugh, what do we want to do? They want to quit and mm-hmm. you know build a bookstore? Like, I don't yeah. know anyone it's it's that last jedi thing of like the point of the last jedi is i mean there's many points to it but one of them is luke skywalker finally becoming self-actualized and letting go of of hate and resentments of like himself and being at peace and being able to move on which is literalized by him dying and there's the scene of yoda and him sitting in front of the tree which I, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, this movie like whacks you on the head with multiple thesis statements and people still misinterpret it and think it's a bad movie. <laughs> and like the one thesis statement is from Yoda and it's, we are what they grow beyond. And like, that is like, that's the truth of like kind of what we're talking about, where if you're just serving yourself and thinking about yourself and not really thinking about your impact on others or what you can do for others, then none of this matters. And like, it certainly doesn't matter if you're also not happy. And tick, tick, boom, like Larson never was older, wide enough to reach that point, but that's because, but he was on his way there. That's kind of the, the point of the film is he's writing what he knows. He's introspecting about it and he's thinking about his impact on others. Pig is this guy has realized that he doesn't want any of this and can't make an impact on others in a concrete way besides his art, which is making him suffer. So he backs out and it's just, there's all of these things beyond just being successful or being the best that matter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Right, in my day to day life, 
and in my career and everything. Unfortunately, I just don't always see that from other people. So it's refreshing to see it here. Yeah. I think especially the environment, I think, where you and I have been for the past three years, I don't think there is a lot of space for that. No. Like and if there is, it's... by people and by stories around you're going to be the best and the most and the highest and the, you know, it's always about these types of comparisons that depend on you being more than somebody else in a certain way, in prestige and reputation, in money, in decision-making, in whatever, that it's like, I feel like it's not only pressure, but it's also yeah. like, not like he says in the theater, it's like, not real, it's fake. Yeah. It doesn't exist. And something that frustrated me so much about business school was even people that were trying to go into politics or like nonprofits or whatnot, it was still self-serving and more like, well, I can do this and then I get to know board members and I can build my career. I can do X, Y, Z. And that's, that's why. So one of our, one of our classmates died from breast cancer last year after business school. And that's something that really shook me so much was the fact that she was one of the, the good ones that did care. It was such a bummer. Like there were so few people that had that like light and spark of caring about something beyond themselves. Yeah. Sorry to rip this band aid off here, but No no no. This is I think about I don't know. I think about Erica a lot with that. Yeah. I feel like I'm having, we're having like the the midlife crisis before the midlife crisis. Yeah. We're moving the midlife crisis before. Of, um... It's, the, the thing about business school is that it's a bunch of lectures from a bunch of people at different stages of life telling you here is every midlife crisis you will face in the next 40 years and start thinking about them all <laughs> <laughs> but then nobody does but then nobody, nobody does, does. In an explicit way with you because it's the dog syndrome right you think everyone is doing okay yeah. and the reality is that probably no one is but by everyone pretending it makes everyone feel more alone yeah I mean have you seen this week's succession the party? Yeah, that's what the like entirety of the all that bangers too. all the time. Yeah, all bangers all the time. It's just like two central I mean, at least Tom and Kendall, maybe Shiv, maybe Connor. Like it is all of these characters realizing like that they've been placing their happiness and their expectations and their goals in the absolute wrong things, and they're all realizing it at the same time. And it's just, it's a really awful episode to watch. I go back, I go back to the line that Tom said. That has resonated with me a lot. It's a very real way from the the, the wrong drugs in the wrong order at the wrong time. <laughs> no, <laughs> the, <laughs> it's like when I think of like, let's make it very concrete. But this is just the way to think about it. Like, let's think about what we think of our professional lives or what we think is going to make us happy. There is the fear of leaving what you have right now to, to look for that. And then, you, you know, he says, like, I know I would be unhappy without you, but I don't know if the unhappiness that I feel with you 
is more than happiness I would feel without you. And it's like that level of, I know I'm afraid of the unknown and I'm putting myself out there in a way that it's not only against expectations, but also against my own expectations of myself of like, should I give myself permission to think about maybe what I want to do is have a bookstore. I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want like, that's what's going to make me happy. And if, no, it's not even taking the jump to do that. It's taking the jump to think about it, that it's even scary. Yeah. Because you might realize that it is. And that and realizing that it is means that everything that you've been working on for the past whatever years, was it wasn't wrong, but it was maybe flawed. Or it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. It's, also real, it's good, and it's something that you probably need to do. But it's almost like the sunk cost fallacy of, no, I'm down this path, I need to continue. Very simple philosophical takes on yeah, art this week. I mean, I I love that. <laughs> I think for the same reasons, both you and I have similar long term career goals, which is, I just want to operate a mildly profitable small business for the rest of my life and be happy, and just live amongst, in your case, books. In my case, films on a screen. And cocktails, but like, I just like we just you want to create Alamo Draft House. I literally want to, you know. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. But like, it's okay. it's, it's yeah. really telling that like you and I just are like let's pump the brakes on this. And I think COVID clarified a lot of that too. Where it's just like when you when you suck away all the artifice and like going into the office and like the high of performing well in front of others and whatnot, and it's all just contained to a screen. I'd rather be watching other things than work, you know? Yeah. And I think it goes back to something that I think the podcast has been very helpful for me. You know, I remember talking with you. What was it? It was like six months into the pandemic. Yeah. A little bit less. That we've been talking about it. And there was some, again, it's, I think it's, it's exactly these types of decisions in, in a smaller, less risky uh, action. But it was like, do we want to do this? And I think through our minds, it was a part of, well, we know it's going to be time consuming. We know, we don't know where our careers will take us, but we know there is a chance that we're going to be working something related to this that is going to make us stop at some point. We are friends and we might be worried that at some point if we have a disagreement or one of us needs to stop, it's going to make the other one feel bad. We were, well, I'm going to talk about me because I don't know about you. I was afraid of putting my voice out there. I'm worried about not hedging takes. I'm worried about yeah. putting things into the ether in the internet. I'm self, uh, self-conscious self about my accent. I'm self-conscious about someone calling, you know, saying something wrong. I'm self-conscious about so many things. And then I think we've talked about it, I think, in the different milestones that we've had, you know, the 10th episode or the 20th episode of the, or the yeah. year or the first guest, which is like, this has been awesome. Like, it's therapeutic and it's, it allows, it allows me to find, to find this spot, which is like, I just want to do whatever I want to do and talk uh-huh. about whatever I want to do. And, you know, when people ask me, when people hear that I have this, the first thing that they go to is, but how many people listen to you? And part of me is like, I don't care. I don't care. Like, we haven't done any, we haven't done any marketing. Like, this is not about that. And it could be at some point, right? Maybe we say what we want to do is we want to build this brand and it's not only about this podcast, but we want to go into... Producing a movie, we might decide, hey, let's open a production company, let's raise a little bit of money and help 
someone that we like do something. Or it might be, we really like the critic part. So let's create a website where you and Kevin and somebody else can write about movies. Or it can become, oh, this other person that we know has this awesome takes on culture. They should also have a podcast. Whatever it is. Or nothing, right? Or none of the above. But it's, again, it's giving yourself, giving myself, ourselves, the chance to say, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's, yeah. let's put ourselves out there. It has been impactful for sure for me. And like one, one of the things I did right before the pandemic was I, I was part of a program at Stanford called Low Keynotes, where it's essentially their version of TED, but you prepare a talk, 10 minute talk on any subject. And most people are, most people's things are either something they're very much a subject matter expert in or something or it's like kind of how i've self-actualized through xyz and mine was like i want to give a very technical talk on the public domain <laughs> and why copyright mm -hmm. law great. matters and doesn't it's matter it's not only great it's on youtube right it's on Go youtube find carl low keynote yes and one of the, the pieces of feedback i got was like this sounds like a humble brag but whatever Please. was that i am knowledgeable about most pretty much everything i i speak about in in that capacity or was speaking about and the more i think about it the drier it gets because i just try to boil it down like it's the engineer and me boil it down to the essence whereas yeah. why people like talking to me about these things is because i just can spontaneously talk about them and i need some structure i need to think ahead but Ultimately, it's just as much about just being authentic and out there and presenting what I want to talk about in the order I want to talk about as it is structuring it and think about. And I think about that in terms of the show. Early on, the uh, last I think last Thanksgiving, we released the, the Splash Mountain episode, which that was our oh, yeah, first right. stab at the show. And it is wildly different than where we ended up. Like, we Oof, were going to... Wildly. We were to do some like Dan Carlin, like exhaustively researched yeah. long form bullshit, which would have we would have fizzled out on that really hard. Like you and I have fizzled yeah. out on even adding a lot of structure to the show at this point because it's time consuming and kind of not our strength. And it's just has been really good at structuring my thoughts on the fly, learning to communicate better, and you know being able to own it even when some naysayer like Kevin comes in and criticizes my thoughts. I'm like, I don't care because these are mine. <laughs> Bye, Kevin. Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Kevin. But no, yeah, that's a big realization for me as well. Of like, I mean, it's a weird thing, right? There is a piece of privilege. Like everything we're saying is like, it's easier because we, you know, we are very privileged to be where we are, to have the job that we have, to go to the schools that we've yeah. been to. And we don't have like the very, we have more than the basics that we need to be happy and thrive to even yes. being able to ask these types of questions. Um, but there is something exactly about what you're saying around. There is, there is a very implicit like core jump or core acceptance that we had to make or that I had to make, which was like your voice matters and your voice is worth it even if it's not the most knowledgeable, even if you're not mm -hmm. right all the time, even if you're like, you have the same right and ability to say what you think as anybody else. And 
podcast is a weird medium because you put it out there and people can hear it and disagree yeah. with it. But it's just it's the same as being like, yeah, you can write on your journal whatever you want. You don't have to show it to anyone, but like your thoughts are yours and that's okay and that's all you need and being comfortable with being comfortable with that. Like Today earlier, I said Led Zeppelin about the trailer and it wasn't Led Zeppelin, it was Black Sabbath. Right. And it's okay. <laughs> and that's what I like about podcasting is if I'm writing something, I edit it to death and I'm trying to be better about not editing it to death and just like letting things mm-hmm. flow. But podcasting, it's it's live. Like it's what Francis Ford Coppola is talking about in his book. It's, there's some magic to something happening live and the fact that it's flawed and not perfect, but it, it makes it more real in the end. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, we edit our episodes, but it's, I think early on we were editing a lot of ums and uhs out and like trying to make it mm-hmm. this more pristine thing. Whereas now our edits are, okay, you and I really want to Google a number. So we make sure it's, it's okay. <laughs> so we like cut out 30 yeah. seconds while we're Googling or, or, we're talking about something yeah or alex or ariela come into the room and we want to say hi to each other exactly i know but we're 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 not editing away we're not editing it into artifice anymore i don't think yeah exactly i agree with that um yeah i feel like this this uh, middle section of today's podcast is uh i want to tell people hey listen to this and if you don't want to listen to all of it listen till like 40 minutes in about our philosophical point yeah i know that started with sondheim Antique Tick Boom and ended up, uh, <laughs> these things. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. Let me, I know we're now on the longer side, but I want to finish going through the list, if you will allow me to take a step back from this. Let's thing. do it. And we can do it very quickly. First one, and kind of connected to this. I've never watched If Bill Street Could Talk. Yeah. Dude, it made me angry. And you're going to know why. Why the hell is he directing The Lion King 2? <laughs> I'm so angry. I'm so angry. Like it's so great. Moonlight is probably the better film of the two. Like if sure. we're looking formally, but I like Beale Street more. There's just so much going on in it. It's magical. I don't know. He's so good. He's so good. And again, we don't have to talk much about it, and this could be a good transition. Brian Tyree Henry. He has like five minutes of screen time there, yeah. and he's awesome. And that can also be this just my very quick segue into Eternals. Yeah. He also is not the Eternal with the most time, and he's amazing. And I want to get your thoughts on Eternals into the record here because I watched Shang Chi and Eternals like two days. Like yeah. I watched Shang Chi two days later, I watched Eternals. I thought Eternals was superior in like every sense of the word. <laughs> I. I, I have seen, you watched Shang Chi? I haven't seen Shang Chi. I okay. don't really uh, care to. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I just my so my sister went and saw it with her boyfriend the other day, and he's a big Marvel fan. Boy, he's seen all the Marvel movies and walked out, and he was like, "Yeah, I don't like it." And and Lauren Eternals said, or image or Eternals, Shang-Chi. Eternals. Okay. And Lauren was like. This is one of the few things that actually made me care. She do- actively doesn't like Marvel movies. And she's like, this one I could grab onto. I cared about every character. I thought it was interesting. It looked and felt different than all the other stuff. This is how you get, like, if you want me to care about Marvel, show me stuff like this because I will care. 
And that's about how I felt. That's how I felt as well. It was interesting to see where... This was one of those movies where I thought the the thing that we'll have Kevin next week to talk about, the difference in Rotten Tomatoes. I thought this yeah. was going to be stronger with critics and lower with audiences. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. But yeah, I mean... Of course it's over the top. It's freaking Marvel. Like, yeah. of course it has weird loopholes of why do the Deviants exist if at the end of the story they don't care and... Oh my god, there is a celestial in the core of the Earth? Oh, that makes no sense. But, I mean, like, that was always going to happen. Like, every single Marvel movie is full of that stuff. Yeah. But, I don't know. I, yeah, I cared about the characters. I cared about the relationships between them in way faster than with everyone else. Yes, there is a ton packed into it. You're learning their story and their development and where they're solving they're still trying to set up the next movie with the Dark Knight or whatever uh, Keith Harrington's character is going to be. Mm-hmm. But this is a movie that I would watch a hundred times before so many of the others. Like Shang-Chi, yeah. they have like this, I don't even know if, like, I, the literal, uh, like, Cthulhu, like the devil comes out and then there is a flying dragon that fights it in this other <laughs> dimension that you get through a bamboo forest. And it's just like, What? There is another vanilla terror organization that manages everything just in like every other single Marvel movie. And it, yeah. this so, felt, I don't know, this felt at least different. On this note, after I watched Eternals, I had like a tiny Marvel itch. So I finished WandaVision. And oh, okay. it's just. It's amazing to me, like, there's so much in WandaVision that I really do like, even even throughout the end, and it's it's mostly when these characters are just talking to each other about real stuff, rather than the lore of it all, or, like, fighting, or, God forbid, S.H.I.E.L.D., or, or I guess their sword now, or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what sword is, and I don't care to look it up. It's just this dumb, boring, militaristic, gray stuff. And Eternals, people made fun of the fight scene for looking silly. But ultimately, I think Chloe Zhao's really not that invested in the action. And it shows, and I think that's what people get frustrated by. But the action is, is in most of these movies, is nothing that I couldn't get out of a video game in 2005. Yeah, there is a point where everyone is so powerful, and all the enemies are so bad, and so big, and all of these guys are Superman, basically, that it, it I mean... It's not about that anymore, right? Yeah. The thing that and gets you to connect with these folks, it doesn't matter if all of these people can actually find this huge celestial once it's out. I'm actually glad that there wasn't a yeah. generic army of CGI bad mm-hmm. guys. And that's what I like about Zack Snyder's Justice League, a much worse film than Eternals, but especially in contrast between that and Joss Whedon's, the stuff that makes the Zack Snyder one sing is just weird little sequences where you're watching the flash save a girl and grab a hot dog for a dog you know that's what's magical it's just this existing in this space watching these characters live and perform and exist like that's and in the comics the same thing that's what makes me grab onto it it's not the like wham bam panels of the comic that i like skip through it's the actual conversations about shit yeah, and there are some very cool relationships. Not that I want Disney to do this, don't do this in Disney Plus, please. But like, I would watch a movie or a show about Gilgamesh and Thena live in Australia. Yeah, like the relationship that these guys have is the most 
love you can see, and they don't even show that they are in love. It doesn't matter. Or the life of Cersei and Sprite with Keith Harrington in London. Yeah. Sure. Just do that. Kevin, you might get angry with us. That's fine. We'll <laughs> be here next week to tell us about, kind of about this. And people have commented on the sex scene being kind of like out of place. But, but for me, I think a sex scene would be far out of place in most of the Marvel movies where they're just like these waxed Greek gods with perfect physique and like just completely boring and like sexless in in their presentation whereas this you understood like the sex scene was part of growing the emotional vocabulary of these characters and showing that this is how they relate to each other this is why they're like they're in love with each other clearly this is an interesting tool marvel's never used in the toolbox and chloe implements it yeah it feels weird and out of place in a mainstream marvel movie but at the same time it makes it feel like more real characters than some of these other people have certainly better than jungle cruise which i have not seen but i have seen pic- videos of him kissing emily blunt and that is just like that is not sexy at all we'll talk about jungle cruise in a sec okay. um but yeah honestly the most baffling part about eternals is why kingo just disappears mm-hmm. was he was he sick did he have like a scheduling conflict I He's just like, don't, I don't want to be there no. and he leaves. And I kind of get it, but I also don't. And maybe that's the point, that it doesn't matter. His character just didn't want to be a part of that. And that's the way that he expressed it. And then he leaves. It's just strange. I wonder yeah, if I mean, something at least, happened. At least they, like, say, hey, I'm leaving. And he just doesn't disappear from the, the screen forever. But, like... like, Well, not yeah. forever. He appears after. He appears at the end. And <laughs> he's... I, I don't know. I loved his Bollywood number. That was great. I thought it was fun. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, next week as well. But also, Brian Terry Henry. Amazing. Like, his family stuff. I, I don't know. Think... Like, I care more about his relationship with his husband and his son than I ever cared about, like, Iron Man and Pepper Potts. Yeah. I don't know if it's the way you tell the story or the way you spend time with them or the signs of affections that are mm-hmm. explicitly shown. But it's like... It's, I don't know, yeah, Brian the, These all feel like real characters because the acting is that good. <laughs> I, I, Gemma Chan is the weak link as far as acting goes, but at least, like, I, I think that's the weak link of the film, is she's probably the weakest actress, at least in this role. And she doesn't have, like, a lot of the charisma that I think being the, I, th- I would call her the most protagonist of, of the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I think just, like, it has a protagonist problem. But even then, like, I don't know, she does have, like, a handful of modes of acting that do work well for the character when she needs to. Like, I just, I don't get the, it being reviled. Same as Cruella. It's like, this thing is competently made. It made me care. It didn't feel three hours long, despite being three hours long. And I'd rather watch this any day than Black Widow, you know? Yeah. Same with Chang-Chi. Yeah, you can skip yeah. it. Jungle Cruise. Uh, I don't know how to say it. It's it, The first half is like the same exact formula of everything. Yeah. Half-baked Pirates of the Caribbean type stuff. <laughs> uh, everything with the rock, to your point, is always going to be super over the top and in the jungle. Uh, 
there are a couple of specific plot things they do towards the second half that actually were like, oh, okay, you know, it's nothing crazy. I'm not going to spoil it in case you create that. It doesn't matter. But yeah, I left like halfway through the movie. I was like, this movie, like, it's going to get erased from my mind the second it ends. Mm-hmm. And it almost did, but not that much. Like, it ended and I was like, you know, you know, it was better than if it was going to be halfway through the movie. <laughs> <At least>. So, <laughs> yeah, just in case you watch it. And then I think the only, the other stuff, I mean, Frozen 2, it was the Thanksgiving, you know, we were building a puzzle. We put it in the mm-hmm. background. I really watched for the first time Iron Giant. Bradford for the win. Fantastic. And I watched King Richard yesterday. And? It's one of those movies that it's... He just chose a weird moment to start at end, Mm plot-wise. So there is always this feeling of like, you never know when you're in the climax. So I think pacing is a little strange. Yeah. I think Will Smith is great. I, I went to look at videos of the actual guy and yeah, very interesting. I think both, uh, what are their names? Give me one second. Both trainers, like he ends up going with two coaches and the actors are uh, John Bernthal is the second one. Mm-hmm. And then the first one is played by Tony Goldwyn. I think both of them could be also like, uh, supporting actors because they are fantastic. Cool. Fantastic. I think especially John Bernthal, it's like, it's such a, I don't know, such a weird, interesting character. Uh, it's too long. It's two hours and a half. Pacing is strange. You, I don't know if you really find the climax, but strong. Not yeah. best movie contender, I don't think. If it is, I don't think it's going to win. But Will Smith and these two other guys, um, I could see that. Oh, uh, Eugenia Ellis, she plays the mother. She's also good. I think she could also be like supporting actress. Cool. I this seems. Yeah. I almost watched it on a plane the other day, and it seems like exactly the venue in which I should watch this movie. It seems like a good plane movie. Yeah, I watch hours, it in my th- good performances. It's in HBO Max for yeah. two more weeks, so you can watch it at home. It's a cool story yeah i you know the story maybe was again wasn't an american i'm not a tennis person so i didn't know the story about serena and venus and how they became what they are but good sir i really despised some of the the bad faith discourse around this film where people are like yet another movie about women that's really about a man it's like i Mm. this one one no film can usually sustain two protagonists unless one is an antagonist. So, like, you're going to unfairly tell one story versus the other, and there would be discourse around, oh, well, they're not telling Serena's side of the story, they're only telling Venus's. So, yeah, it, it does... I understand the frustration with collapsing them into this kind of, like, singular monolith, but at the same mm-hmm. time, unfortunately, that is the cultural perception of both Venus and Serena Williams, is that they are a cultural monolith together in the public perception and how the media has painted them. And the story they're telling is about bringing them up and like suffering to coach them and get them to where they are, which, you know, 
as much as they did work as a kid, like that is also their dad's story. And I think that's a fair way to, to show multiple stages of their lives while also like honoring their dad too. I just think that that argument, I, I, I understand it. It holds water, but in this case, it's just like, just stop universally making blanket statements about stuff. That's just so stupid. Yeah. I get it. So that was my least. Oh, you didn't mention, you texted me to let me know that you watched Spencer. Oh. Or are you hiding from the audience here? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I did watch Spencer. I'm, I'm more holding this for when we have Kevin on mic because Kevin really likes okay. Spencer. And, you know. I'll try to Spencer, watch it between now and next week. Spencer really 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 fell apart for me and didn't work so we'll talk about it next week but yeah that was a a big disappointment um yeah they're like they're standout moments there's beautiful stuff there's interesting ideas but it's a mess and i was really disappointed in that and we'll we'll punt that to next week okay i'll try to watch it between now and then uh this was fun we had a ton to talk about after not recording for 10 days did. especially with the philosophical and the meaning of life tangents obviously there's a dozen things that have happened in in business and media from jack dorsey stepping down on twitter <laughs> or and renaming square uh, block yeah there's all the stuff with uh activision blizzard and their ceo and the sexual harassment scandals there Netflix keeps making things. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of stuff we could have talked about, but I'm glad we just kind of caught up. And I like it when we have one topic and just kind of keep kind of get there with the subject. Yeah, it's good. I think so too. Uh, perfect. I think on that note, we're glad to be back on a weekly schedule. Yeah. And I'll talk to you next week, Carl. Yeah. You as well. Bye, everyone. <laughs>